0: Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works.
1: Hello, welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman.
0: And I'm Chris Beam. And today, uh, Michael, we're uh, going to interview uh, Forrest Briscoe, who is a professor of management at the Smeal College of Business here at Dear Old State. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're, we're bringing him in because of something that uh, is, is very timely and and we all think very uh, significant in terms of uh, development within our democracy. And that is the, uh, the I- increasingly political and partisan role of corporations in politics
1: yeah I mean what we're what we're seeing uh, and, and people have been talking about a lot in the aftermath of uh, the parkland shooting uh, are you know has to do with businesses acting in a sort of progressive direction and being on acting more quickly and uh, more dramatically than government's been able to act on some issues having to do with firearms but you know it's we've also seen this in recent years with uh, the businesses' response to uh, some state anti-LGBT uh, initiatives—right, North Carolina, saw this Indiana. in North Carolina. Saw mm-hmm. it in Indiana when Mike Pence was governor, mm-hmm. and they passed a strong, uh, uh, a strong anti-gay bill. Usually used to thinking about sort of the outsized power of big business in a democracy uh, I- in terms of their. Resources that they're able to throw into the political system, uh, you know, the court decision in Citizens United, which gave corporations uh, quite a bit of leeway mm-hmm. to exercise uh, yeah. what they found as a freedom of speech.
0: I would argue that there is something you know fairly significant and new going on here, and um, I was reminded when we when we started talking about this uh, of the uh, famous quote from uh, Michael Jordan when when people said, "Why aren't you more political?" he said republicans buy sneakers too and if you assume that as you almost certainly should that a corporation exists primarily to make money to you know to increase profits the idea that you would want to make a decision that would alienate potential customers strikes me as you know just something a, a business categorically wouldn't want to do right right but now for for a variety of reasons, that calculus has changed. the the underlying uh, objective of making money hasn't changed, but the calculus of how you do that appears that it has. Right.
1: So that so that now it, it maybe it is good business to right. take a position. And well, things have changed. You know, one thing that's changed, and uh, perhaps Forrest will talk about this when we uh, when uh, Jenna brings him into the conversation, uh, is that. You know, there's a premium now in many companies on a different type of employee, and uh, it, it may be necessary to attract that sort of uh, labor base to be able to have, a, I don't know, a more socially progressive agenda to certainly for the company to provide. For example, corporations were way out in front on providing uh, same-sex uh, partner benefits, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. example, well before government was prepared to act on that. Because they needed to. Right. They didn't do it because...
0: Well, I I mean, I think this is a a long or a a very endemic question of how much of this is driven by... Uh, the companies or the company's leaders' own political stance or values and how much of it is driven by the, the bottom line. And, and usually it's both, right? I mean right you know, I,
1: I imagine all those things are mixed up into exactly. it. They, you, you might have business leaders that are more inclined to take socially progressive stance. instead of, you know, we had plenty of business leaders who took quite conservative stances mm-hmm. and were quite vocal mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. about that at various points in our
0: history actually. Uh, but, yeah, you can see, you know, folks in Silicon Valley saying, I care a lot more about the fact that this person is an excellent coder than I do that he or she is gay. And if I need to <laughs> extend benefits to them in order to keep them, that's a good business decision. Why don't we bring
1: uh, farce into the discussion with Jenna and I, uh, see where we go? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing
2: what he has to say. Jenna?
3: Forest, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, my pleasure.
3: Um, I thought maybe we could start off with a little bit of of history to to set some context. Um, So I think that the way that this story of corporate social responsibility, corporate activism, if you will, is, is portrayed is that, you know, 50, 60 years ago, companies existed Primarily to make a profit and you know serve their their investors, their shareholders, what have you. Then didn't really get involved in social issues, the you know greater public good, that type of thing. Um, I guess I'm wondering if that rings true to you, mm-hmm. and um, if so, how did we get from that to the the place we are now, where it seems like these companies are becoming much much more active socially and politically.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair statement that. We had, you know, it was probably always a stylized account, but um, business was the business of business, and Milton Friedman's kind of idea that the um, it only detracted from a business's ability to do good if it pursued issues other than maximizing profits. And I think another part of that historical thing is, I mean, probably... I think of those three sectors, you know, business, government and like civil society or whatever you want to call it. That also used to look more like um, three different groups that kind of had different interests and the sentiments that they would express would be different. And now they're all kind of mushed together. And uh, if you look within any one of those sectors, there's a just a lot of diversity, including business.
3: Um, what are some of the, the factors that, that might go into a company's decision to get behind a particular cause or movement or, or issue or, or something that they want to kind of try to move the needle on?
2: So sometimes companies change because they're being targeted by activists who are threatening the reputation more often or maybe the resources of the company. But um, something that I've been, I've been on the side of this other kind of growing group of people, who are saying, yeah, but there's also persuasion here, and sometimes the people you're trying to persuade are actually kind of participants in the movement. You know, so when you see Mark Benioff of Salesforce out there on, you know, some on Squawk Box or whatever, like talking about his social issues, it seems like he's more part of the movement, and it wasn't that you threatened his company it's that he's, you know, a participant in the change effort. So I think that it's partly still that civil society groups form to reflect democratic interests in society, and then they push these companies to do things. But it's also sometimes that the leaders in these companies or the kind of middle managers in these companies get together and they say, hey, we we could do this. We have extra resources to do this, or maybe they make the business case for how they're going to make even more money by pursuing this, um, and uh, that's more common these days. And I, I think, like I said in the, when you talk to business school students, they think that way,
3: right? Yeah, and it is, it is good for the bottom line too. It seems.
2: There's always uncertainty about how doing something is going to affect the stakeholders who support the company. But like with the LGBT rights workplace issue, the thing they focused on, the thing that became their like uh, focus was getting health care benefits for the gay and lesbian partners of employees. And of course, no one knew what that was going to cost. You know, it was a kind of health insurance. Some people thought. Thought some people were saying like, oh, there's all these people with AIDS are gonna become part of the healthcare expenses of our company. It's gonna be super expensive, but um, it turns out, you know, so some reports started coming out. It actually added very little to the bottom line healthcare expenses, and so people were constructing the business case for this change, pro and against, and eventually it got resolved that it was really had very little impact. Um, on the healthcare costs and that it had this huge positive impact for attracting and retaining employee talent. Um, but in before that was resolved, it was kind of like people were arguing both sides.
3: Sure. And, and now there's even, I think, um, uh, organizations that rank the most LGBT friendly workplaces yeah. and things like that.
2: Yeah, that 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 human rights campaign group had a genius. They were one of the first groups to kind of realize companies benchmark each other constantly. So if you construct a kind of ranking that gets them to start benchmarking against each other on your criteria, then they're very susceptible to worrying about that and it can help drive kind of spread change farther.
3: Oh, that's that's interesting, too. I guess on, on some of these social issues, there, there, there might come a point where a company might be conspicuous by its absence, right? If their, their yes. peer companies are taking a stand one way or, or the other.
2: Yeah, so those kind of... You know, we thought about the, the tactics that movements took in that era where it was all about forcing are different than these kind of persuasion mm-hmm. tactics. You think about peer pressure, <laughs> basically. Companies worry about their reputations, business leaders still operate in these, you know, bubbles where they worry about even what their colleagues who are other business leaders who they're going to talk to on. They interact on boards of directors and at social events and they care about their kind of uh, personal reputation, too, in relation to these issues. So the persuasion tactics are much more about those things. Sure. And, um, in a way, that's a more kind of liberal idea of a, of a culture of an organization that's more open um, to influence. And it's it's less kind of top down, you know, it's more bottom up. And so that, that rhetoric has been part of um, management speak for now like 30 years. And of course, in terms of running the business, it's meant you want your employees to bring their ideas about how to improve the business. But it's also meant that employees bring these other parts of themselves and their identities and their issues, including identity politics, into the workplace.
3: Can, can you give us some, some examples of that?
2: Yeah. So um, uh, the the outcomes that you can see. Um, so we we saw that If you look at your top management team and your board of directors, right? one big issue lately has been, boy, they look very um, male. And um, the pace at which Fortune 500 companies have been adding women into that upper echelon has been faster for liberal companies Mm -hmm. than conservative companies.
3: Could you see that that being a, a factor for someone in trying to decide if they have you know multiple offers on the table?
2: Yeah, I think that's a big uh, argument that people make. It's hard to get data on that too, but you'd think it's kind of a self-reinforcing thing. Like a company that stakes out the um, progressive side, like you mentioned Patagonia earlier, I, then hires not only hires. Talented people, but talented people who probably share those beliefs. So there can be kind of a self-reinforcing nature to this.
3: Is there a danger, do you th- do you think, in companies becoming too homogenous in terms of, you know, thought thoughts and, and feelings of, of people who work work at them?
2: Yeah, and that's something we, um, we've—I oh, personally think about, and we've been trying to find in our research, like, you might um, imagine that— um, Uh, Some firms, for example, like any kind of organization or institution, it can uh, have a varying amount of internal diversity on the ideology. And that might be if it's um, paired with some functional communication. (laughs) Maybe that's a good thing. Everybody's sharing their different ideas, and it enriches um, the discussion. Yeah,
3: yeah kind, kind of a, a democracy, if a you democracy, will. A yeah. democracy, if
2: you will. But of course, we know democracy depends on the processes <laughs> and the culture. And the alternative would be this highly diverse organization is balkanized and rife with conflict that's destructive because it's not being channeled through some kind of useful process. And so that's on our agenda to study that. I also worry about organizations just becoming too um, too aligned with partisan ideas. And in fact, if we look across these three sectors, you know, it's it sort of could strengthen partisan divisions if we've got the business leaders, the government leaders, and the civil society leaders all aligned and identified, especially if it's like identity politics. In two camps, and so while we want, I think you can celebrate this new world where these three sectors are all mixing and matching and collaborating. You could also worry about some new kind of alignment that, um, in a way, runs deeper.
3: Sure, sure, yeah, it kind of, kind of deepens that. You know, my team, your team. It's, yeah. it's not just who you vote for; it's who you work for. It's the organizations you're involved with, for the sure.
2: Tribal politics, and yeah. the other piece of this we haven't t- talked about yet, but. The information communication technology revolution has also facilitated ways in which people can find their tribe, and that happens in the workplace. That happens in you know civil society, obviously, and so um, that's also both fueled new kinds of collaboration and and social issues getting into the workplace. But it may also be fueling the same kind of partisan divide, I mean in the workplace that it's also fueling in the rest sure. of our discourse.
3: Sure. And that's that's a good segue into the other kind of angle of this we, we haven't talked about yet talked about yet, which is the consumer side. There's the other side of people who are out buying all these these products and and, and services and I think their expect expectations might be changing too in terms of what, what they expect a, a company to, to stand for or, or be involved with. Um,
2: Yeah. So the 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 thing there that used to be the obvious thing to study and and watch was boycotts. But, you know, as these things we call boycotts have become a social media phenomenon, it's not necessarily actually leading to changing consumer purchase habits. And there's more of them and they're easy to mobilize. The kind of average effect of one of them might be just going down to zero. I think business leaders, they can't avoid these issues now. So they need to think about how they're going to respond to consumers as a stakeholder. And, um, you know, so at least sometimes those boycotts can matter still. The the flip side of that is, I hate this term, but (laughs) boycotts. You know, supporting a company through um, saying that um, we're going to, you know, we're going to buy more of your products because of some (laughs) stand you've taken on a social issue or something like that. Sure.
3: Well, great. Well, this is this has been a a fascinating conversation. Um, We're going to end with our four Mood of the Nation poll questions. So um, we'll try to get through this quickly. Um, So thinking specifically about um, American politics, what makes you angry?
2: Uh, um, thinking specifically about American politics, um, I worry about uh, money in politics still. Even though there's a lot of noise right now with the current administration, I still worry in the big picture about money in politics from any uh, angle.
3: Oh, that's in, I don't I don't think we've had anyone say that yet thus far. So, um, and then what makes you proud?
2: Oh. Well, especially now in this moment, um, the durability of our democracy is, and the idea that nobody, that it's a system in which nobody can accumulate and hold the most fundamental power for too long. You know, I hope we stick with that because it makes me proud. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. What gives you hope?
2: What gives me hope? Um, hmm. So, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about young people and where they're at. Uh, and uh, it gives me hope that young people do seem to be able to use these new tools, including social media, which I don't really understand too well, to make change. Um, and uh, on the flip side, I guess I'll come back to what worries me a little bit is, um, the speed with which we can make changes and scale up um, all sorts of innovation, I think could have a dark side. Um, so there's an inner conservative in me that worries about just how quickly we can mobilize and like, yeah, do things which might have unintended consequences.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it is, it is a, a double-edged sword, yeah. uh, as you said. So, well, great. Well, Forrest, we will uh, leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thanks, this was fun.
1: Well, we're back, Jenna. That was a terrific interview. And uh, Forrest, uh, really, boy, he talked about quite a bit, covered
0: a lot of ground. It really does. uh, He really did bring home just how uh, complicated this whole subject is and how really the potential of just really changing the face of American democracy. Yeah.
1: Uh, I was struck by several things that he said that I thought maybe we could pick up on a little bit. Uh, uh, So he he alluded to uh, just how partisan. Mm-hmm. business has become
0: right exactly but but it and so the idea that you know i mean is it because government has become you know so uh gridlocked that it can't achieve anything in terms of regulation or is it that it overreached and i mean this is obviously the republican argument that right that it's just so uh awful that all we need to do is just you know dismantle this regulatory environment or is it just that um you can move things more quickly within the, the, uh, the economy than outside it.
1: But, but that, what I do think we're seeing is that there is a new sort of partisan, partisanization that's kind of gotten introduced into, into uh, certainly among consumers that I would argue businesses are responding to. Uh, where they're saying, you know, I think we also saw it with, you know, liberals saying, I'm not going to buy uh, what was the chicken? Chick-fil-A. Yeah, Chick-fil-A. Right. Uh, because uh, they are a they the uh, owners of Chick-fil-A have taken anti-gay positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're deeply religious. They're closed on Sundays. So that I I think it's being introduced more by customers that are requiring businesses to take sides on some of these high valence kinds of social issues.
0: Well, all right. A, I think you're conflating individuals with businesses, right? I mean, I think Adelson and, and uh, the Koch brothers are individuals, and so... Oh, but
1: they're, they're contributing on the uh, uh, in terms of protecting their business interests. Of
0: course, but, but what um, Forrest was talking about was the idea that a corporation has a reputation and that that's part of their business model, and so they have to be a lot more concerned about the consumer than an individual does and uh, and so they are packaging an identity and you know at the current place and time it's impossible to avoid doing that, and it's impossible to do that and avoid politics, avoid partisan positions.
1: This is part, and Forrest alluded to this, and I thought quite well, that, you know, the sort of tribalism that we see in so many facets of American life, which... You know have been well documented by David Brooks and many many others sure.
0: well i you know i I think it's it's uh one of the things that he, that I took away from um from Forrest was this idea or his his statement that you can make a business case for anything, and we were talking before about how you know it's hard to kind of decide how much of business decision is driven by profit motive and how much of it is driven by genuine um values and and value commitments and and partisan points of view. And, you know, he makes me think that, you know, bias is everywhere. And if you have a point of view, you're more likely to see a business case than you would if you didn't. And you're more likely to um, to make a decision that kind of like sees these things as in line, even though they may not necessarily be. Right.
1: And because of social media and just the amount of information that's out there these days, you now you know this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. You know the political stands of the of the CEOs of certain companies or that, or stands that companies have taken so you know for dicks this was in many ways they must have seen it as good business right I, yeah, to I be think able right. to appeal to many many people you know I mean sure they have a hunting section at Dicks but they also sell a lot of soccer
0: gear-hmm mm-hmm. Right and, and you <laughs> not know to, i don't know to
1: define people too obviously, <laughs> but i don't know I don't know how to you know i don't know enough about where their where their revenues really come right. from, but they must have calculated at some point we're better off selling better off appealing to the people that are buying soccer gear.
0: well and and you know the other side of that social media is that uh, corporations are hearing immediately they're getting immediate feedback exactly. on what they do or don't do yeah but but so. So are we looking at a world or a society in which you're going to be um, picking your gas station because it's more lefty or more conservative, more right, or more Republican, more Democratic? Well, I don't know if we're already there, but we're we're certainly moving in a, a direction. And
1: uh, it's part of what makes, I think, the kind of work that Forrest is doing just really interesting in, in terms of – I mean – the role of business in politics is a perennial question, mm-hmm, right? Sure. In the study of understanding how as a you democracy operates.
0: Capitalism and democracy go hand in hand.
1: Yeah. From a consumer perspective, uh, choice is good. Right. So, you know, if the more choices I have, you know, as long as I don't
0: get so many choices I can't make a decision, then. Yeah. and moving yeah. and moving power into the hands of the individual consumer is a fundamentally more democratic. I mean, what point it, what of view, it, from the
1: perspective, perspective of a from the perspective of a consumer who's politically aware, all right, uh, why shouldn't I be able to give my money to mm-hmm. a company mm-hmm. where I think that the company's shareholders and the company's leadership shares my values, right. and that they're going to work towards those rather than another set.
0: And I, and 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 with respect to some of the issues gun control, gay rights, climate change, um, you know, those are important social issues. And if they're not moving in politics, then it's it's entirely legitimate for people to try to find other ways to move them. So the bottom line is that this is an extremely important and complicated Ah, topic. I feel like we could just keep on going, but uh, Jenna's going to jump out of her shoes if we don't stop since. All right. Well, uh, as always, we appreciate you listening. And uh, if you have any comments or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. This has been Democracy Works.